During this short but eventful decade, we've witnessed a lot of shifts in the world of work and labor. For example, while the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour hasn't increased since 2009, 29 states have approved a higher statewide minimum wage than the federal minimum. And on New Year's Day of this year, 21 states increased their minimum wage. While the state of California is the only state which mandates a minimum wage of $15 an hour, some others are working towards achieving that, and the idea has become more mainstream in terms of both public awareness and popularity. It's not uncommon these days to see cities mandate a higher minimum wage than the state they're in, like here in New York City or in Seattle, as well as seeing employers publicize how the starting wage for employees is higher than what local laws mandate. And speaking of wages and salaries, the concept of salary transparency has also become more popular. For example, the New York City Council recently passed a law which is set to take effect later this year in which employers will be mandated to list the salary range for any job advertisement. A few states have already passed similar laws and some even make it illegal for employers to ask about a candidate's salary history. The aim of these laws is to help reduce the gender pay gap, reduce worker exploitation, and to ensure that employees who do the same work get compensated at the same salary. Besides wage increases and salary transparency, another trend has been working remotely. In the past, few office workers had the benefit of working remotely, but during the pandemic, it became quite common. And now, a recent survey showed that 58% of Americans are able to work from home at least one day a week, and 35% work from home every day. While not everyone has the benefit of being able to work remotely, and not everyone actually enjoys working from home, it's true that more and more employees are asking for that option, and many people find that they enjoy the greater level of autonomy they experience when they work from home. Another trend, a labor trend you've heard about, is the Great Resignation, which describes the mass voluntary exodus of employees from their jobs starting last year whether because of concerns about job or salary dissatisfaction or coronavirus safety issues, or because of a desire to work for companies with more flexible work arrangements. Some of the job sectors with the greatest losses were in the food service industry, the retail industry, and in healthcare. Earlier this year, the media reported that due to the Great Resignation, there were 5 million more job openings than there were unemployed people in our country. This labor trend is even making an impact on pop culture, as when the award-winning singer-songwriter Beyonce took note of this movement in her new song, Break My Soul, in which she sings a lyric that says, Now I just fell in love and I just quit my job. I'm gonna find new drive, 
They work me so damn hard, work by nine, then off past five, and they work my nerves. That's why I cannot sleep at night. As one of the highest paid singers in the music industry, I imagine that Beyonce doesn't lose any sleep over any of her bills or expenses. But I also know that for much of the public, her lyrics are an accurate description of the experience, their experience of the labor market these days. And speaking of quitting one's job, another term you might have heard lately is quiet quitting. What that term means is that if someone is quietly quitting, then the employee is simply doing the bare minimum at one's job and only doing what one is required to do without going above and beyond what's expected. Some people may do this in the context of getting ready to actually resign from a job, but while some executives and managers are concerned about quiet quitting, others are praising the concept as an alternative to what's called hustle culture, in which an employee works tirelessly to pursue one's goals. In response to the criticism of employees, which is implied in the term quiet quitting, some people on social media have coined the term quiet firing instead, which describes when your employer demoralizes workers enough that they quit on their own, like when an employee doesn't get a raise in five years, even though the employee has been doing everything that's expected of them, or when an employee, an employer adds to an employee's workload without offering any additional compensation for that work. While there's been a lot of development in the labor market during the past decade, one aspect of the world of work which persists across the decades and in various settings is the concept of dirty work. When you hear the term dirty work, you probably think of jobs that are generally considered unpleasant and that uh, jobs which one would not normally want to do oneself. These include jobs like garbage collector, janitors, sewage cleaners and inspectors, landfill operators, mortuary embalmers, pest control specialists, hazardous material removers, coal miners, crime scene cleaners, and even being a farmer. Of course, there is absolutely nothing wrong with doing any of these jobs, and they are all necessary and very useful to our society. And all laborers should be respected and compensated fairly for the work that they do. Having said that, there's another sense of the term dirty work that I'd like to explore, and that's from the moral sense of the term. In 1962, the American sociologist Everett Hughes published an essay titled Good People and Dirty Work, which drew on conversations that he'd had in post-war Germany about the mass atrocities of the Nazi regime. His essay argued that the persecution of Jews and other minorities took place with the unspoken assent of many supposedly enlightened Germans who restrained themselves from asking too many questions because perhaps on some level, they weren't necessarily outraged by those activities. And so that led to his definition of dirty work, 
that it's any kind of unethical activity that's delegated to certain workers and then disacknowledged by the wider society, even though those who do the dirty work have an unconscious mandate from the rest of society. Though the Nazi example is rather extreme, Hughes wrote that this type of scenario takes place in every society, which enables respectable citizens to distance themselves from the morally troubling things being done right underneath their noses. The dirty workers themselves are not outlaws, but are instead agents of otherwise good people who quietly stand by. Dirty work, of course, isn't relegated to the past or to another continent. Here in our society, there are many types of dirty work, all of which have in common that as a society, we'd rather know less about it, even though we acknowledge the necessity of it. These jobs can include the United States Border Patrol or ICE workers who have to enforce policies which many consider to be inhumane. Or it could include the mental health aides and guards who are tasked with safeguarding the wards of the country's penitentiaries, many of which are filled with cruelty and violence, and yet is also the number one place where people in our country receive mental health services. Or it could include the undocumented foreign workers who staff the kill floors in industrial slaughterhouses where fulfilling the popular demand for cheap meat often means that the workers aren't always treated well and neither are the animals who aren't always treated well before going to the abattoir. Or it could include the military personnel who work as drone operators and who've had to engage in targeted killings in many of the ongoing wars of the 21st century and whose activities aren't always strictly observed and whose targets don't always avoid killing or hurting innocent civilians. Last summer, the Israeli-born American journalist and author, Eyal Press, published a book about these forgotten and unseen laborers in a book titled, Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America. He interviewed workers in many fields like the ones I just mentioned, and he came to realize that one way that privilege manifests itself in our society is in the way that many of us don't have the burden of having to dirty our hands while at the same time keeping our consciences clean. It's a privilege to be able to dissociate oneself from those secluded places where dirty work happens and leaving the nasty details to someone else to worry about. In terms of creating change around this topic, Press said this, quote, what we owe dirty workers is the willingness to see them as our agents and to grapple with our own complicity. We also owe many of them the right to have their stories listened to with respect and curiosity. End quote. The willingness to see dirty workers as our agents and to grapple with our own complicity is something that reminds me of an insight from Universalist theology. 
which is that while all of us have dignity and worth, and all of us are saved, that we should not presume that we are worthy and saved because we are so very pure, righteous, and praiseworthy. Since all of us are complicit in some kind of dirty work, we have to grapple with the actions done on our behalf. And we also have to be grateful for the amazing grace which is patient with us and which saves us all. Hi, my name is Ember Kelly, and I'm the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. This part of our video and audio podcast is a moment where we dive into our message and our themes of our service just a little bit more, trying to understand uh, what the message was about and answering maybe some questions you might have had. And so this week, Labor Day, we had our final message of the summer, which is hard to believe. Um, and we had Reverend Mark, one of our affiliate ministers, uh, share a very labor message about dirty work. Uh, Reverend Mark, I am really appreciative of you taking the time to do a labor message on Labor Day. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, a lot of, uh, this is somewhat related. Not a lot of people realize that we're one of the few countries that celebrates Labor Day in September. Most places celebrate it in May. But whenever you celebrate it, uh, as long as we acknowledge it and honor it, I think that's the most important thing. Right, right. Oh, I think, and I think, I feel like Reverend Schuyler did a, did a Workers' Day message, now that I think about it. So see, Could we be. got both covered. We got May 1st and Labor Day. We did labor messages. Go for it. <laughs> it's on our mind. Um, so obviously that might have been a little bit of inspiration. What, what inspired this message uh, specifically? Yeah, well, um, you know, uh, the reason I preached this particular sermon today was an acknowledge, you know, that we're celebrating the Labor Day weekend. Uh, but, um, you know, beyond that, um, a lot of, you know, when you really think about it, a lot of people spend most of their time at work or doing work. And I, you know, kind of wonder, you know, what does our Unitarian Universalist faith have to say to us about work and labor and those issues? Um, it's, you know, something that's really important. And, you know, I was reading, um, Reading uh, this uh, writer, A.L. Press, uh, he wrote a book called Dirty Work and about um, how um, certain forms of work, uh, how it connects to the sense of inequality in our country. So I wanted to, I was fascinated by it and I wanted to elaborate on that. And also, um, you know, just thinking about, you know, we're only two years into this decade, but it's been a really eventful decade. And, you know, work has changed a lot. Um, over the past two years. A lot of people work from home, people who never thought they could ever do, you know, work from home now do that. And it's very routine. Um, the great resignation, you know, it started last year and we're still talking about it. Um, there's, there's more job openings than there are unemployed people, which is you know, somewhat unusual. Um, there are, you know, we talk about quiet quitting now. We're talking about quiet firing. Um, those are like new topics that just started, you know, people talked about this summer. Um, but, you know, something that's been consistent, you know, throughout the decades is um, this concept of dirty work that I found that the writer A.L. Press talked about, which actually goes back to a, a sociologist, uh, Everett Hughes, who wrote about dirty work in 1962, um, that in a, and basically in any society, there are people who do jobs that um, aren't respected, that are considered um, morally questionable, even not just like unpleasant or physically dirty or you know, having to do with garbage, but like 
morally dirty and that people do them, they have to do them. And in some sense, they are our agents. You know, as members of the society, we empower people to do the dirty work, but then, you know, while the dirty workers get their hands dirty, we get to feel good about ourselves because we're not doing dirty work, even though, you know, we are somewhat complicit in that. So anyway, that was a long answer to your question. What was the, uh, for anybody who might be interested, what was the name of the book again? It's, uh, I'll tell you right, the, I'll give the short version of it. It's called Dirty Work by Al Press, but I'm going to give you the full uh, title in just one moment. Uh, it was just published last year. It's called Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequality in America by Al Press. Um, you know, really good book. He's a great um, writer, journalist. Um, you can find his stuff in various magazines, but anyway, check it out. And also, I just want to give another plug for another book, which is that, um, you know, I don't know if our viewers know, but um, the great writer Barbara Ehrenreich, she died recently. I just read her obituary yesterday, um, and she wrote a book. Her most famous book was Nickel and Dimed, uh, which was a book that, you know, I read when I was a college freshman, and where she kind of went undercover and did um, work um, as a kind of an investigative journalist. She worked as a waitress. She worked at a Walmart. She worked, um, you know, different jobs that, you know, maybe don't pay very well or that people, um, you know, work long, hard hours and just kind of exposed what, especially for like middle-class people or upper-class people that they may not realize what it's actually like to do these more working-class type jobs and talk about the exploitation that's there. So, um, you know, she just died, um, uh, you know, this past week. Um, you know, it was interesting to just read about all the contributions she's made as a journalist and a writer um, into the, you know, exposing what the world of work is like. Right. When I think about, you know, when you talk about the great resignation, things like this, uh, I, I think about when, when COVID started, uh, I was teaching in Vietnam, but before I was teaching in Vietnam, uh, the work that I had done in the U.S. before that was that I was working at Target and that I was working uh, in a hospital in the dishroom. Um, you know, the very unglamorous work, the putting the groceries on the shelves so that people could buy them and washing the dishes so that people could eat them at the hospital. Um, eat from them at the hospital. And when COVID hit, I said, oh my gosh, like, I am so thankful that I'm not in those fields right now because this would be the fields that I had most. And it's, it's really interesting that there's so much discussion about like, ah, oh, we can't find any good workers, but nobody stops to think about the fact that a million people have died. And perhaps a good portion of those were these people that were these essential workers who you know, while being touted as so important, we're not truly valued. Exactly. And, you know, you were talking about the type of roles that you did. And, you know, those during, you know, 2020, 2021, those were considered, um, what was, you know, essential workers, basically. And so, you know, those people didn't get the um, benefit of being able to work from home, like many of the rest of us did. Um, and, you know, after a certain point, many people who were essential workers, um, you know, have been part of the great resignation, whether we're talking about um, people, food service workers, like, you know, you, I mentioned that you did when you worked in the kitchen or or retail workers, like you mentioned, like you, um, when you were working at Target, and people in healthcare, you know, uh, everything from doctors and nurses all the way down to, you know, like you said, people who work in the kitchen, um, those were all essential workers. And those are three of the great, uh, three of the industries that have had the greatest losses during the Great Resignation. Um, and, you know, a lot, again, for those of us who are middle class or upper class, we 
we can really kind of ignore people who do those jobs, especially, you know, you know, you used to work at Target and, you know, Target's a great store. Lots of people go shopping there, but, you know, since the, um, you know, pan the COVID-19 pandemic, more and more people have been doing their uh, shopping online. So in the past, maybe you would like walk into a Target and you would literally see someone working at the register, stocking shelves, um, you know, putting the carts back where they belong, um, you know, all the different things that, you know, to keep a store running. And nowadays you don't even really see that because if you're just clicking something online, you're not going to like see the people who are, uh, you know, you won't even see the delivery person because you probably won't be home when she or he arrives. So, you know, just, just things like that. Um, but, you know, there's also other, you know, like I, you know, in terms of dirty work, you know, I, I want to highlight that um, the type of dirty work that Ayal Press is talking about is not jobs that like, you know, we don't want to do them, but they're not like morally bad, like, you know, working as a dishwasher, for example. Um, but, you know, also jobs like um, people who work on the kill floor of a slaughterhouse, um, you know, many of whom are, um, you know, foreign undocumented workers. And, um, you know, what, what moral complicity do we put on those workers to satisfy our need for cheap or affordable protein for meat, right? Or, um, you know, we say we value, you know, national security, but then we empower people to, um, say, military personnel to, um, you know, send drones to, you know, do targeted killings uh, in different countries. Um, and, you know, sometimes they kill the intended target, but sometimes also innocent civilians in other countries get, you know, killed too. And, you know, there's that moral, there's that collateral damage, I guess. And, and, but, you know, we, the less we hear about it, the better, because, you know, we don't want to think that, you know, uh, those people are acting on, on our behalf, even though they are. And so, you know, not that we have to like punish ourselves for that, but just to be aware that, you know, we may go to, you know, sleep with a clean conscience because we think, well, I'm not doing anything bad. But, you know, as a society, we we do have some complicity in, in this kind of dirty work that we allow to happen and that we're okay with. And again, you know, the less we know about it, the better. Right. And I think these, you know, these are great points, especially as you use for us to think about when considering, you know, the fight for justice. We, we um, you know, I think the unit UUA is seen as perhaps a little bit more of a privileged uh, denomination and it is yeah um, it, it's important for us to be aware of this and you know have this knowledge that we can um, so that we're not being complicit in things that are harming other people so. agreed agreed and you know again not to you know not that we have like not that we can fix this problem overnight or that like you know by if we just pass this one law, like all these problems will go away tomorrow, or, you know, unfortunately it doesn't really work that way. Um, but, you know, at minimum, you know, something that AL Press said is that at minimum, something we can do is to, yeah, wrestle with our own complicity in these systems, but also, you know, to listen to dirty workers, like give them an opportunity to, um, to share their stories and for us to show curiosity about the work they do and to, you know, show them respect also, you know, they're workers, we're all workers. And so we, you know, Dirty workers too deserve to, you know, receive respect and and deserve our curiosity too. So I something to think about. R e s p e c t. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Yeah. Reverend Mark, thank you for this message. Thank you also for taking this time to sit down and talk with me. My pleasure. Thank you.